This is Understanding Israel-Palestine. I'm Marco Patterson, the producer of this week's episode. June marks 16 years since Israel imposed a blockade on the Gaza Strip. I'll be speaking to Jihad Abu Salim, author of a recent article in The New Arab, about Gaza and about new concerns that Israel may begin treating West Bank cities like Jenin as it does Gaza. But first, news. Unrest continues in the occupied West Bank following Israel's most violent assault in two decades in early July. The two-day raid on a refugee camp in Jenin saw Israel deploy attack helicopters, warplanes, drones, and armored vehicles, causing massive damage to civilian infrastructure and 800 Palestinian homes. 13 Palestinians and one Israeli soldier were killed in the raid. On day two of it, a Palestinian man in Tel Aviv wounded seven Israelis in a car ramming and stabbing attack before being shot dead. Since the operation, Israeli forces have killed three Palestinians, two of them militants in the city of Nablus, another man fatally shot in the chest by Israeli forces during a demonstration in Um Sara in the central West Bank on Friday, July 8th. Another Palestinian was shot July 11th when Israeli forces said they stopped a motorist in a town near Ramallah, who then threw a grenade at them and opened fire. Among those killed in the Israeli raid on Janine was a 16-year-old boy who had come to a hospital outside of the refugee camp in response to a call to give blood. The Israeli Defense Forces claimed he was a combatant, but video has since surfaced showing that he was not armed when he was shot dead by an Israeli sniper as he stood in front of the hospital. Israel's ambassador to the United Nations is calling upon UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres to retract his condemnation of Israel's excessive use of force in the attack on the refugee camp. Guterres said the Israeli operation left over 100 civilians injured, uprooted thousands of residents, damaged schools and hospitals, and disrupted water and electricity networks. He also criticized Israel for preventing the injured from getting medical care and humanitarian workers from reaching everyone in need. Israel's UN ambassador, Gilad Erdan, called the UN chief's remarks shameful, far-fetched, and detached from reality, and has called on him to retract his condemnation. A spokesman for Guterres said he stands by his remarks. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu lauded American moral and political support for the raid. His right-wing ruling coalition moved forward this week with its controversial plan to overhaul the judiciary and diminish the power of the Supreme Court. In response, thousands of Israelis blocked highways and thronged the airport July 11th in protest. My guest today is Jihad Abu Salim the executive director of the Jerusalem Fund for Education and Community Development, a nonprofit in Washington, D.C. that works to educate the U.S. public about Palestine and to improve Palestinian lives in Palestine and the diaspora. He recently wrote an opinion piece for the new Arab news site about the blockade of Gaza, its purpose, effects, and continuance. Jihad Abu Salim, welcome. Hi, Margaret. Thanks for having me on the show. I want to ask you about your opinion piece, about the blockade, and about concerns being raised in the wake of the Israeli attack on a refugee camp in Jenin in early July, that Israel may begin treating Jenin and other places in the West Bank the way it treats Gaza. 
But before we turn to that, could you tell us about the Jerusalem Fund and what it does? Of course, the Jerusalem Fund is one of the longest-running Palestinian organizations in the United States. It's been around since the late 1970s, and it does three main things. The Jerusalem Fund provides grants for Palestinian organizations in Palestine and in neighboring Arab states to uplift the lives of Palestinians, especially those who live in conditions under Israeli military occupation in refugee camps, and provides initiatives that try to improve the lives of Palestinian communities living in these conditions and provide relief to support their resilience and steadfastness in the face of adversity. For example, the Jerusalem Fund supports an initiative that provides support for diabetes patients in the West Bank. It provides supplies, awareness on the issue of diabetes, especially when it comes to children. And of course, we support all sorts of different projects and initiatives such as powering clinics in the Gaza Strip with solar energy, helping rebuild kindergartens, build playgrounds for children. The list can be endless of regarding the kinds of initiatives and things we do. The second thing the Jerusalem Fund is education. We organize in-person events here in Washington, D.C. and also online to raise awareness on the Palestine issue in the United States. And and the third thing we do concerns an art gallery that we have here in the heart of Washington, D.C. at our office that hosts different exhibits and showcases different kinds of Palestinian art. You're getting a joint degree in history and the Hebrew language and Judaic studies from New York University. That surprised me when I read it. I wouldn't expect a Palestinian from Gaza to get a PhD in Judaic studies in Hebrew. What was it that led you to that particular plan of study? I study pre-1948 Palestinian writings on Zionism. In fact, the field of Hebrew language as as an academic discipline is a big field in Gaza. A lot of Palestinians there study Hebrew, learn it, speak it, because they want to listen to Israeli media, Israeli TV, Israeli radio, and learn about what's happening on the other side of the fence. For me, it was an academic consideration, and it's something that I need for my studies, for my research. Gaza has been under a punishing blockade for 16 years now, and the word punishing does describe the blockade. It was instigated to punish the Palestinian people for voting for Hamas in democratic legislative elections in 2006 to make life so miserable for people in Gaza that they would force the militant group from power. In 2006, Dove Weisglass, an advisor to the Israeli prime minister then, stated, quote, the idea is to put the Palestinians on a diet, but not to make them die of hunger, close quote. A 2008 document revealed that Israeli officials researched the bare minimum caloric intake they could restrict Palestinians to in Gaza without causing malnutrition. The blockade has wreaked havoc on the economy and isolated and impoverished people there. You're from Gaza. You have family there. Could you talk about conditions in Gaza today and how the blockade has affected and continues to affect ordinary Gazans? The blockade has resulted in devastation for Palestinians in Gaza. As you said, it's 
wreaked havoc in every aspect of life for Palestinians there. I would just like for your listeners to imagine what a day in the life of a Palestinian household in Gaza looks like. When you live in the 21st century and can only have access to six to eight hours of electricity a day, or sometimes you get electricity for eight hours and then you get blackout for the next eight hours. When you have barely any access to fresh water, when you get sick and you find out that the local hospital can't treat you and then you have to apply for a permit to cross into the West Bank or Jerusalem, but have to be added to a waiting list until you're approved by the Israeli military bureaucracy. And until then, as a cancer patient or as someone who has a critical condition, you might lose your life or your condition might never be healed again. When you try to send your kids to school, when your child receives a scholarship in a foreign country and they can't travel here in the United States, when we decide to travel, we just take an Uber or get on public transit and get to an airport, book a flight, and that's it. For Palestinians in Gaza, travel is a nightmare because it's something that is severely restricted by the Israelis. It's something that's not easy to do. I myself, I left Gaza in 2013 to pursue my studies here in the United States, and I haven't been able to go back. It's not impossible, but it's a nightmare. Anybody traveling in and out of the Gaza Strip might risk getting stuck there, might risk not being able to leave again. I say all of these things because I can talk about numbers. I can say that unemployment is 45% amongst uh, those who are capable of work in, in Gaza. I could talk about how much of the freshwater reservoir is polluted. I can, I can talk about how the, the, the power crisis, the electricity crisis in Gaza leads to the dumping of untreated sewage water into the Mediterranean Sea, into Gaza's beautiful shore. I can talk about all of these things. But at the end of the day, after 16 years of blockade, it is important for people, especially here in the United States, to understand the human cost of what's happening to Palestinians in Gaza at the individual level, at the level of the family, at the level of the household. Think about what it would mean for people to go through these conditions, not because of a natural disaster they're going through, and not because of anything except that they are under a man-made blockade, a man-made set of policies that are put in place just to break these people, just to punish them for who they are, and just to ensure that they are not able to fight for their freedom and independence in their historic homeland. I hope this captures the reality on the ground, but the reality on the ground is grimmer for sure. More than five years ago, the United Nations warned that by 2021, conditions in Gaza would become unlivable. It is now 2023. And you mentioned that even though the blockade has failed to crush Palestinian resistance, living conditions continue to deteriorate. What do you hear from people there about how living conditions are deteriorating? And what, if anything, is being done by the international community to lift that blockade? There is a sad answer to this question. 
and and it concerns the last part of it. What is the international community doing? And the international community is doing nothing. It seems to many at this point that the blockade is Gaza's destiny for an unknown period of time. There doesn't seem to be a way out anytime soon. Gaza is going to suffer from all sorts of restrictions that Israel has imposed on people there. There are no conditions that eventually would lead to the lifting of the blockade because there isn't enough pressure on the Israeli regime, the Israeli occupation regime, to lift the blockade. And that that is a very grim scenario for Palestinians in Gaza, for an entire generation of Palestinians. Gaza is a very youthful place where 50% of the population are under 18 years old. Think about that. The population in Gaza is around 2,200,000, half of which are children. And those children, at this point, the majority of whom were born into the reality of the blockade, were born into the reality of unemployment and de-development and economic hardship and scarcity and austerity and all sorts of these challenges. Unfortunately, the, the international community is not doing anything. And I think the past few years witnessed a state of normalization of the conditions of the blockade and an acceptance that this is the fate of Palestinians in Gaza. But does that mean that Palestinians in Gaza have accepted this as their fate? Of course, the answer is no. People in Gaza are resourceful. People in Gaza try their best against many, many odds to persevere and to be creative and innovative. But of course, At the end of the day, when 2 million people who are living under blockade in an area the size of the city of Detroit, deprived of any resources, deprived of any raw materials, deprived of access to the land that most of the Palestinian population in Gaza owns right beyond the fence with what is today Israel, when you don't have access to any of these things, you are destined to dwell in in a condition of de-development that would require an intervention from the outside, pressure on the Israeli regime to lift the blockade, to open Gaza, to open the borders, to allow people to travel. There are Palestinians in Gaza with relatives in the West Bank, mothers and uncles and aunts and cousins who haven't been able to leave, who haven't been able to go to Jerusalem to receive medical treatment, cancer patients who are dying in Gaza because Israel wouldn't issue permits for them or would issue a permit for the cancer patient but wouldn't allow their their children or their siblings to accompany them to go receive chemotherapy. So this is the grim reality and people are fighting back. But at the same time, Israel is a nuclear state, runs a sophisticated military machine and is supported by the greatest powers on earth. And without pressure from below, especially in the US, the situation in Gaza and other parts of Palestine will continue to worsen. If you're just joining us, this is Understanding Israel-Palestine. I'm Margot Patterson, and I'm talking to Jihad Abu Salim about his recent article on Gaza in the New Arab News site. The Israeli attack on the Janine refugee camp the first week of July was the most violent Israeli offensive in the West Bank in 20 years. The attack involved airstrikes and up to 2,000 ground troops. During the offensive, 3,000 to 4,000 people were forced to flee their homes in the camp. 
A July 6th article in the Guardian newspaper notes that the scale of destruction in Janine resembles the destruction that occurs in the Gaza Strip, which Israel periodically bombs. The Guardian and other newspapers, other commentators, are raising the question whether this is the beginning of Israel taking the same approach to the West Bank that it takes to Gaza. Do you share that concern? Israel's approach to dealing with the Palestinians is not that different, whether it's Jenin or Gaza or Nablus or Hebron or Jerusalem. It is the same principle. Israel is operating according to a settler colonial logic. That logic operates on the assumption or on the intention that Israel seeks to control maximum land and have minimum numbers of Palestinians living on that land, or preferably, as Israel's current leaders say, kick Palestinians out, expel them, or, in other words, achieve a second Nakba, which they have been talking about. Jenin was the site of a large-scale massacre and destruction in 2002. Here we are, more than 20 years later, Jenin witnessed the same reality. And that is because every generation of Palestinians is born into a reality where they see Israel taking over their land, Israel destroying their dream for statehood, for independence, and preventing them from achieving any of their goals to live freely in their land. When Palestinians see these things unfolding and try to even raise a, a hint of opposition to Israel's policies, Israel then unleashes its humongous military machine against Palestinians and meets them with with death and destruction and bloodshed. And that's because Israel wants a reality in which Palestinians should witness their land being settled, their land being taken away from them, Israeli leaders threatening to expel them and take over their livelihood and destroy their future as a people and as individuals and as families. And at the same time, Israel doesn't want Palestinians to react. Israel doesn't want Palestinians to resist. Israel doesn't want Palestinians to do the human thing, which is to stand up against injustice, which is a universal value. Every human being on earth would defend her or himself when their dignity and where their honor and when their livelihood and when their very existence is assaulted. I would say what we're seeing in the West Bank now is a process of Gazaization, meaning that when Palestinian communities in the West Bank rise up against Israel, using armed or unarmed methods when they show a bit of resistance, Israel will deploy its military might and try to crush the spirit of resistance and rejection of Israel's action. But at the end of the day, even though Israel has done that in the past, Israel has done that in 2002. It tried to crush the Jenin refugee camp and the city of Jenin. But here we are two decades later, a whole new generation of Palestinians in Jenin are saying no again. And just because they say no, Israel is trying to do the same to them. And the same logic applies to Gaza. Palestinians in Gaza refuse to surrender to Israel. And that's why Israel has put so much pressure on them, has put so much pressure on Palestinians there to surrender and give up and vanish. But Palestinians will not vanish. There's no way Palestinians would just wake up one day and just disappear. Palestinians are going to be around. 
And as people, as human beings, they're going to defend themselves and they're going to do whatever it takes to protect their families, their children, and their future on their land. The article in The Guardian mentioned that when senior members of the Palestinian Authority went to the funeral of Janine fighters, they were booed and they were not allowed to, to attend. The Palestinian Authority is widely perceived these days as lacking legitimacy, as, as having been co-opted by Israel. Hamas is often talked about as being contained. Do you think that's true? And what means do Palestinians have of getting out of this terrible situation in which they are fragmented and their institutions lack credibility in the eyes of their own people? The problem with the Palestinian Authority concerns a larger issue with how the international community and mainly the United States, the EU and certain regional forces have approached the West Bank since the end of the Second Intifada and particularly following the Palestinian political division that followed the Palestinian Legislative Council elections that took place in 2006 and, and 2007. This approach regarding the West Bank was built on the assumption that if, unlike Gaza, which, which is under blockade, if the West Bank is provided with the carrot, Gaza got the stick and the West Bank got the carrot, of economic opportunities, neoliberal economic reforms, loans for people to buy apartments and cars, access to the Israeli market, and so on and so forth, that if all of these things are provided, and if millions of dollars, billions of dollars are spent on building a security apparatus in the West Bank led by the Palestinian Authority that would suppress Palestinian political dissent, suppress Palestinian resistance and collaborate with the Israelis, the West Bank will be calm and and Palestinians there will not take any kind of action to defend themselves. And of course, two decades later into this process, it's proven to be based on false assumptions. Because even though all of these processes that have been put in place to contain the West Bank probably succeeded in achieving some calm, For Palestinians, at the end of the day, in the West Bank, when it comes to the bigger picture, they are looking around and they're seeing that there are more settlements being built, there are more settlers moving into the West Bank, and these settlers are taking over the most important lands in the West Bank with the most precious resources, mainly water. And they're also looking around and they're hearing Israeli leaders talking about completely seizing and annexing the West Bank and also raising the possibility of expelling Palestinians and confining them to walled and fenced off bantustans where they would dwell for eternity while Israeli settlers enjoy living in a greater Israel between the river and the sea with full access to Palestinian land and resources. So, All of these attempts by the international community and their allies in the Palestinian Authority to contain Palestinians fail because at the end of the day, the promise that the PA has introduced to the Palestinian public in the West Bank, that if they pursue a pacified approach, if they don't engage in any form of resistance, if they only like follow the the diplomatic route that the international community would be able to put pressure on Israel, that Israel would 
engage in a diplomatic process, which hasn't happened. So this is the reality now for Palestinians in the West Bank. They are feeling the existential threat. They're worried about their future. They're afraid that at any point now, the Israeli settlers and the Israeli state might actually expel them. This is an existential threat that's felt by people there. When they see these settlers coming into their towns and setting things on fire, this is the prelude to, to the Nakba. This is how things happened in 1947. Uh, and in 1948, most of our people were expelled from more than 500 cities, towns, and villages. It doesn't really matter what the international community and the PA think now, because when it comes to the Palestinian public, especially in the West Bank, there is this feeling of an impending collapse, an impending disaster. And at the end of the day, people are disillusioned with the Palestinian Authority and its backers in the international community. And nobody is buying the pacification argument anymore. And that's why it's falling apart in front of our eyes. Your article mentions that Palestine activism is facing intensifying attempts at repression and censorship all over the world, particularly in the U.S. and Europe. Could you talk about those attempts? Unfortunately, the forces that oppose Palestinian rights are using different tactics and strategies to shift the focus from a conversation about the need to hold Israel accountable to one where they want to limit speech and freedom of speech on this issue and smear Palestinian activists and call them all sorts of names and codify into law the criminalization of speech, the criminalization of acts like boycott. Boycott was an important tool during the civil rights era in the United States. Boycott was an important tool in the struggle against apartheid. However, Israel's allies in the West want to put pressure on Palestine activists through the law and through propaganda campaigns to curb the progress that Palestine activists and their allies have been making over the past months and years. This is unfortunate because the consequences of limiting speech will not be limited to Palestinians and their allies only. When precedents are created and codified into law about criticizing state institutions, Palestinians criticize the Israeli state as an entity that is composed of institutions that are engaged in human rights violations. Since when is it wrong to criticize states? We do that here in the U.S. We do that in Europe. We do that in many, many places around the world. And this is a vital part of what defines democracies, what defines functional democracies and institutions. So the assault on Palestinian freedom of speech, the assault on on Palestinian activism will have far-reaching consequences, not just limited to Palestinians, it will set dangerous precedents. And they're doing this and they're escalating because they know that the public is shifting. Recent polls in the United States within American Jewish communities, within the Democratic Party, and even within the evangelical community, also in the U.S., show a growing uncertainty and even sometimes disgust with Israel's actions against the Palestinians. This is why Israel and its allies are worried and they're trying to deploy all sorts of tools and tactics and strategies 
to limit speech on Palestine. And I really wanted to emphasize how dangerous this is, again, not just for Palestinians, but for every individual who believes in freedom of speech and expression and the right to engage in activism, including boycott and including raising awareness about a particular issue. Jihad Abu Salim, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Jihad Abu Salim, Executive Director of the Jerusalem Fund for Education and Community Development. You've been listening to Understanding Israel-Palestine. If you'd like to hear the full recording, you can go to our podcast or listen online on our program page on the KKFI website at kkfi.org. 